We have been going through the book of Romans, and um, I don't know if it's just me, but it feels like the past three to four weeks, it feels like we have been doing um, Christian calculus together. Um, you know, so I don't know why, but like I seemed, hey guys, it seemed to fall on every sermon I get is like, Let's talk about predestination. Let's talk about um, whether you've been created for destruction or not. All these kind of great things that we love to talk about all the time around our conversations. And um, this morning, uh, what was on the docket for Romans is Romans chapter 11. But I felt for us as a congregation that we need to just kind of do one of these this morning. <sighs> Can everybody do that together with me? Just go, <sighs> all right, so... We're going to take, if you had coffee, well, I think we have mints or something in the back. Um, if you've been tracking along with us in Romans, I particularly felt, man, I feel like every week we're just hitting people, we're, we're, going, we're, we're plowing the hard ground, and so I felt this morning under God to um, jump into the book of Psalms this morning. And so my encouragement to us is as we listen to the Psalms, the Psalms are one of the most devotional portions of scripture. There's a reason why so many good theologians write devotionals from the book of Psalms. And if you do a devotional, uh, my encouragement is to always include Psalms in your devotional because the reason why is you see so much honesty in Psalms um, and you see though the conclusion always comes back to the truth of who God is. So often, the writer of Psalms will say things like, man, my life is terrible, this is really hard. Uh, things that we say in our lives like, God, where are you? Why is this happened? Et cetera, et cetera. But the writer of Psalms never lets it just kind of end there. The writer of Psalms always comes to, even though this is how I feel, this is like the reality of my life, these are things that are actually happening right now in the situations and circumstances, I come back to the truth of, God, you are still God. God, you are still in charge. God, as we've been looking in the past few weeks, God, you are sovereign. And not only are you sovereign, not only does everything answer to you, you are the one who creates all circumstances, but God, you are, you are good in your sovereignty and you're faithful in your sovereignty and you're merciful and you're just in your sovereignty. And so Psalms always helps us come back to reality of where we're at, but reality of who God is. So I want us to look at Psalms Chapter 37, we're going to read the first uh, nine verses of this this morning, and then uh, we're just going to unpackage it together. And my encouragement is, as we read this, don't let this just be in your mind this morning, right? Don't let Psalms just be, you know, you're hearing truth and you're, you're saying, hmm, that's right, that's not, you know, all, we're just weighing it up in our mind. But my encouragement to us this morning is allow this truth to go from what's the longest distance on the planet? It's from our head to our heart, right? And it's so often as Christians, we, we can know things about God. We can even like understand facts about the truth of what Scripture is. But sometimes from here to here, that, that distance gets cut off somewhere. And so my encouragement to you this morning is don't allow that to happen, all right? So uh, Psalm chapter 37, I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. And uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, it'll be up on the screen for you. And this is what... The word of the Lord says, and this is a psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither 
like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. You've probably heard this verse. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the word. You're the word that became flesh, dwelt among us. And I, I pray that this morning as we preach the truth of who you are and, and who we are in subject to your word and the truth of who you are, God, will you bring transformation this morning. I pray for us as a community that you would set people free, those who are bound by fear, those who are bound by anger, discouragement, those of us who this morning may be trying to work our own way to you by our own works. And I think the reality is for all of us here who struggle with one of those areas in our lives, God, will you come Holy Spirit, will you help us? We need your help. We say that we can do nothing apart from you. We can try in our own effort, we can we can give it all we have, but at the end of the day, really, God, it's, it's you who makes the difference in our lives. And so we come before you. We know that your presence is here with us. We know that you see us this morning. We know that you are aware of every single circumstance in our lives, and that gives us hope. And uh, Lord, I pray for us this morning as we sit under your word, let that hope turn into action let it bring growth and transformation in our lives, we ask. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to, I wanted to read that whole portion of what we're going to go through this morning, but what we're going to do is just pick little parts of that this morning, and I'm going to ask questions along the way. And um, the first thing I, I want to start off with this morning is, if I were to give you a uh, like a magic pen, maybe magic's not the right word, but like a god, like if, you know, like you, you think of like the Greek uh, gods and the mythology of that, and like sometimes the gods would gift humanity something, like, you know, um, who was the guy who took out the big kraken, and you know, you get all these kind of special weapons, sometimes the gods would bestow on these mere Mortals, if, if God in his sovereignty and in his otherness and his holiness and omnipotence this morning were to somehow a magic pen were to float down and you could just see it, this pen's glowing and there's light all around it and you can hear the angels singing as it comes down and it lands perfectly in your hand. And if this pen with it, whatever you wrote about yourself would come true, what would you write? <laughs> would you write things like, 
my bank account now shall be endless till eternity and never be exacerbated. I would probably want to write something like that. I will never ever have any problems for the rest of my life. Everyone will think I'm the best person on the planet. Everyone will smile at me and love me and never look at me cross. Cross is a very British way of saying angrily. What else would you write in there? My children will always be happy and obedient. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. The dog will never poop in the yard. Exclamation point. And we could go on and on and on and on, right? Now we know that's not going to happen. We know that God is not going to give you some kind of magic pen. It's going to float down from heaven. And all of a sudden you're going to be able to write in your journal, if you keep a journal, all these things and you're going to open it. And I want to throw back, also attached to that question, another question. If you were to write out your story, do you think the things that you would write in your story would line up in the story that God would write for you? See, God has a plan for your life. God has a specific plan for your life. God knows the end from the beginning. God knows every part, every circumstance, The Bible says that God knows the hairs on our head. That means that it's not like God's just keeping tabs because he's some weird, he's into weird things about hair. No, it's the fact that God intimately knows every single thing about you. The the word says that when a, a sparrow falls to the ground and dies, that God's aware of just the little tiny birds that seem meaningless to us. God is aware of every single thing. And my question to you this morning, friends, is, the story that you would write, would it line up with what God has for you? Or would it just be full of selfishness and all the things that fulfill your every desire and will? Oh, you hear the question about you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you didn't let me finish, Kelly. I would write in there like, I will give to the poor and I will start orphanages in Mexico and I will make sure that, you know, there's peace, world peace, all these kind of things. You know, what we're really talking about this morning is there's two kind of ways that we can live our lives. One is in a biography. Um, and so if you've ever read uh, a biography, a biography is, or especially an autobiography, an autobiography is a story about yourself, right? Um, um, Billy Graham had a great autobiography, autobiography called Just As I Am. Remember, he would always have that song saying every time they would, people would come up to receive Christ, and he would have his buddy come up and sing, and they would sing, Just As I Am. And so he wrote this autobiography, tells the story of his life. That's not a bad thing. Or are you living in what's called a testimony? See, often what we do as Christians is we want to write our own story. We want the end of our story. It's kind of like, what would you put on your tombstone? All these kind of things, these great accolades of ourselves. This and this happened to Kelly Monaghan. A thousand people showed up at his funeral because he was so loved. Everybody loved him so much. He was the great guy, et cetera, et cetera. We write all these things. But on the other side of that is that God wants us not to live necessarily in this autobiography where we kind of want and do all of our own will and our own actions, but we live rather in a testimony. And the difference between living in an autobiography and living in a testimony is a testimony says, these are the things that happened to me. These are the things that God did. 
These are the things which I witnessed. I was so privileged to be able to witness the greatness of who God is. And it's not really the story about me. It's the story about God. And I think, friends, for the rest of our lives, we're going to be wrestling with that. I know I will. Do I live in a place where I want to create my own story? Or do I trust God that he's a good author? Do I trust God that in his penmanship, everything is written out perfectly? He's good. He knows the end from the beginning. And I trust that as he's writing my story, he knows what's best. And the reason why I want us to look at Psalm 37 this morning is that David's such a great example of this. And what he does here is he gives us kind of five, there's more, but I just picked out five, and you can add to them uh, if you were to read through this scripture. But I'm going to give us five things. I think what David does is he kind of admonishes us with these things. If you don't know what that word admonish is, it's like, it's not really a rebuke, but it's like a strong encouragement warning, so to say. It's like, hey, don't do this because the reason I'm saying don't do this is because I understand I've lived through these circumstances as a father to a son says, son, don't do this, this, and this. Rather, do the opposite of these things. My encouragement to you, strong encouragement and warning is to make sure that when you are living in a life that is a testimony rather than a life that's just about yourself, I want you to see these five things. And so let's go through those things this morning. You guys doing okay? All right. Number one, it's just verse one, it says this, do not be envious. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. Do not be envious of evildoers. Do not be envious. And I think for us, one of the most easy ways to know if we're living in a life that's writing our own story with our own magic pen, an autobiography versus living a life that is a testimony, understanding that God is the author of my life, is do we become envious? Now, I want us to look at some of the examples David gives us. When he encourages us, he admonishes us, don't be envious. Okay, well, great, that's a great encouragement. David lived through this stuff. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel, verse, or chapter 18. We're going to read verses 6 through 9. It says this. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, so speaking of Goliath, remember David and Goliath? The women came out. From all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels, those are tambourines, and lyres, those are kind of like little harps. As they danced, this is what they sang. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. It's almost like the way that Saul heard this was like a little playground taunt. You ever hear that when you're a kid? That's what kids do. They're just being mean to each other. Brothers and sisters do this to each other. Saul has slain his thousands. David slain his ten thousands. Basically, David's way better than you, Saul. That's what, David, that's what Saul's hearing. So what happens? Verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. <laughs> they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands, what more can he get but the kingdom? Ooh. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, there's envy in Saul's heart. 
David is going to live this out because we're going to read here just in a second something that dramatically happens to David and Saul. But when we are living in an autobiography, which Saul was really doing here, or we're trusting God and trusting and we're living in a testimony, the temptation when we're over here is to become envious of those around us who seem to be getting more than what we think we deserve. Hey, how come I put in all the hard work and so-and-so is getting the promotion? My boss is singing, Kelly only slays a thousand, but Jeff slays 10,000, and I know that's not true. I've been the king way longer than Jeff. What the heck, what's up with that? Why is there envy in my heart? See, what envy does is it helps us realize that we don't trust God's story. When envy starts to come up, if there's, think about it right now. If there's any area in your life that you feel it's unfair or you feel somehow somebody else got the upper hand which you should have gotten, the reason for that is because you don't trust God's story in your life. I wrestle with this all the time. We compare ourselves with other people. Now, here's how it worked out. The next day, if you keep reading in in, uh, 18, verses 10 through 11, this is what happens. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. We're not even going to go there. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it at him, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him how many times? Twice. How stupid did he have to be? The first spear to stand around and then just wait for the second one. If that was a spear... I mean, I'm out of there, right? Now, what happens here is Saul is not just envious. He is driven mad with envy. And he's trying to take David's life. And I think what we do, friends, when we start to lose sight of the security of the truth that God is good in all circumstances... See, what we do is we believe a lie like what Eve did in the garden, right? This all goes back. God says, don't eat of this. You can eat anything you want, but don't eat of this. The serpent comes and says, did God, did God really say that? And what the serpent is trying to do to Eve, he's, what he's saying is, is God really good? Is God really benevolent? Is God really trustworthy? Eve, I, don't, I think what he's actually doing is trying to keep you down. Because he knows. And when we live a life trying to fight and vie for ourselves, trying to write our own biography, what we do is we believe lies of the enemy. Because why? Circumstances come and say, hey, you were owed this. You were owed that. How come God didn't? And so we end up fighting for ourselves. And envy, friends, is one of the first litmuses that lets us understand that we're not trusting God. How you guys doing? All right. This is what David says into all this response. Uh, if we continue in 37 and verse 16, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Anybody here ever say that? <laughs> Sometimes what we do is we say, how come those who don't deserve it get all the good stuff? And me who was trying to live a righteous life, 
How come I'm not, not getting all the good stuff? And David trusts God. God's writing the story. It's not about me. Better is the little that I have than the abundance of the wicked. Number two. Verse four, it says, to delight yourself in the Lord. To delight yourself. If we continue to read more of the Psalms, we see so many examples of where David does this. Psalm 84, verses one, two. Uh, he says this, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Those are words of desperation, right? Those are words of just like, you know, when you're, when you're starting to date somebody, or maybe you're, um, you have some distance between each other, and you write each other love notes, those kind of things, and all, you know, like, what are, the, what are the things you write to? I just can't wait till I see you again, right? The, 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 the smell of your hair is so amazing. The sweat on your palms. I can't wait to feel it. I don't, come on, don't laugh. You all know it's true. And then what happens is familiarity sets in. Ugh, your hands are sweaty. Stop touching me, right? Kind of things. But when we're desperate, when we, when we long for, when we yearn for it, when's the last time you fainted in desperation to be near to God's presence? To delight yourself in God. I, I don't know. I don't know when the last time was for me where I just was like absolutely desperate. And I think the reason why that happens is because we get so like filled, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to jump down to there, but John Piper says this, desire for other things, there's the enemy. And the only weapon that will triumph is a deeper hunger for God. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he's unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. Isn't that so true? You ever been so hungry that you found yourself, you're like, Oh man, I'm so, like, maybe it was after the fast, right? When we all broke the fast together, uh, we met here on a Wednesday night, we were over in the gymnasium, and we, everyone brought, like, potluck, and we were, oh, we were so excited to eat all this food that we hadn't been eating for three days. There was pizza, there was fried chicken, there was enchiladas, there was et cetera, et cetera, all this good food, and I remember after the third day just going, ooh, I just want to eat everything. I just want to taste everything, and going through the line, and after I ate a little bit, I was so full so quick, because after three days of not eating, your stomach shrinks up, right? And if you were to, after we had just feasted, try to tempt me with a piece of greasy pizza that before, just maybe 30 minutes before, I couldn't wait to eat. I was like, I don't care how much grease is sopping off that pepperoni. I'm still going to, if it's pooling in the little round bowl of the pepperoni, I'm still going to eat it. Glorious pepperoni, right? And 30 minutes after I just stubbed my face, if you say, here, eat some pizza, I'll go, ugh, Gross. Why? Because I was already full. I was already satisfied. And the reason why we don't pursue God and we don't delight ourselves in God is because we're full of the junk of this world. When God says, hey, I have something beautiful to offer you, you go, yeah, cool, God. Eh, I've already got all this other stuff that I'm already full of. My encouragement to us is, when, when we're writing the story, or we're allowing God to write the story, see what sometimes God does, he says, okay, 
son, I want you to stand over here, daughter. I want you to stand over here. And the story I'm going to write may be things like, I want you to abstain from this. But God, that's not a sin. It doesn't say that specifically in the Bible. No, no, no. I've said for you specifically, I'm writing the story, and you said you trust me. I'm, I'm your Savior. I'm your Lord. Son, what I'm asking for you to do is withhold from this. Why, God? Because I actually want to be the thing that you delight in the most. Remember how David said things like, my soul yearns for the courts of the living God. See, Kelly, where you're at right now, you're over here and you've filled yourself with all this stuff because you've believed the lie that God isn't enough to satisfy you. And so you've settled for the cheap, uh, what's the, counterfeit of the world. But Kelly, what I'm wanting to do is bring you back over here and it may be painful for a season, but I'm asking you to let go of these things and then I want you to find your satisfaction in me and me alone. And here's the beautiful thing, son. The more you find your delight in me, the more you satisfy yourself with me, the less these things will start to look beautiful and shiny. What's that old song we used to sing? And the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of what? His glory and his grace. The world goes, what? You go to church? It's so boring. It's so weird. You're, you believe in all that stuff? You believe in like God created the world like there's some omnipotent being who holds all these things together? I mean, you don't fight for yourself. You don't like try to find pleasure in the things of the world. You mean you're not the kind of person who just tries to work so you can get ahead of everybody on the, on the ladder? No, no, I'm not because I believe God's writing my story. I believe that in his story writing for me that he ultimately knows what's best for me. Wait a minute, you, you sacrificed maybe a month of your 401k so you could give it to the, yeah, yeah, I did because I know that it's not a big deal that God knows and if he asks me to do something, he knows what's going to happen at the end. And so I can be obedient and I can give this to him and I can trust that he's good and that he's going to allow his plan to continue to work. You guys okay? All right, number three. In verse 7, it says this, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Let's go back to one of the stories of David. It says this in 1 Samuel 16, 6-11. This is where David gets anointed as a king. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointing is before him. Who's they? This is the prophet Samuel comes, and he comes to the house of Jesse, and God tells him, go to this person's house. You're going to find the future king of Israel there. So Samuel comes to anoint the king. And this is what happens. He, uh, he sees Eliab and thought, this is what Samuel thinks. Surely the Lord's anointed is before. So Mike, come over here. Let's pretend for a moment Mike is Eliab. All right? And um, no, that would, be, that would be cruel. Let's not bring anybody <laughs> else up. Um, <laughs> So Mike is here, and, and I'm Samuel, and I'm walking up, and I'm saying, oh, this is the house of Jesse. There's, the, oh, surely this is the king's, <laughs> surely this is the, I mean, the crown of glory. When we speak of the gray hair, we're talking about wisdom. I'm trying to catch up to you, Mike. I'm getting there, but I mean, surely and God has anointed this guy. And so Samuel comes to him and goes, and the Lord says, it's not Mike. It's not Eliab. You can sit down, right? And so... 
So, so Samuel's like, okay, it wasn't that guy. And then there's another, I'm not going to make a bunch of guys stand up. But so he goes down the line. He goes down the line, right? And this is uh, what it says. Uh, where, I don't even know where I said. In verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature like Jeff because I've rejected him. <laughs> the Lord hasn't rejected you, Jeff. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Well, if it wasn't Eliab, it must be Abinadab. Um, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah, I think that's how you say pass by. And he said, no, not this guy either. Verse 10, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel until they kind of ran out of some options here. And he says this. The Lord hasn't chosen these in verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Can you imagine being the dad and thinking, these are the guys, you know about David, but you kind of think, surely not David. Now, David knows about this story, okay? Because he's the king, and a lot of these things were written when he was alive. And he knows what's going on here. And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but imagine your dad saying that, but it's just, behold, he's keeping the sheep. He's just a little shepherd boy out in the fields. And so my encouragement to us is David understood what it was like to be overlooked. David understood the temptation to want to fight for himself. David understood that, Lord, these circumstances don't seem to add up. How come my brothers are all getting lined up here to be the king? And when we live in this kind of life that says, I'm going to write, I'm going to take my magic pen, and I'm going to do like Joseph did years before and say, uh, all my brothers will bow down before me. I will be the head honcho. Everybody will come to me because I will be the smartest guy and God will choose me over everybody else. That's, that's, the, that's a period. What happens when our magic pen and our life are not adding up? <laughs> we got to fight for it. We got to make it happen. Lord, this isn't happening. I'm going to do whatever it takes. If that means sacrificing this relationship, sacrificing this value, and along the way, we lose our way. And we look back and we go, well, I made it happen, but I'm way over here. And see, what God wanted to do was bring me way over here. And because I fought for myself, and I tried to write my own autobiography, God's saying, no, son, I have the story to write. And so you can wait patiently on me. When things don't seem to be happening in your timing, when things don't have to be, when they're not happening as fast as you want them to happen, what we do is go, God, please help me. I'm tending to unbelieve right now. I'm tending to want to fight for myself. Will you give me the strength to rest and wait patiently and be a shepherd boy out in the field, singing songs, protecting sheep? One of the lowliest jobs I could be given. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Why are you okay with that? You're so much more, you're so much more gifted than that. You ever hear somebody say, you should be the guy. You should be the girl in this situation. 
I think you should fight for yourself in this situation. Enemy comes. What do we have to do? Say, no, you know what? This is where God put me. This is okay. I'm watching sheep. I actually wrote a whole bunch of like poems while I was writing sheep. Speaking of the Psalms, right? Watching sheep. What did I say? Writing? Well, maybe he was writing sheep. I don't know. <laughs> Bible doesn't say he didn't. Number four, we're moving on here, tells us this, to refrain from anger. In verse eight, refrain from anger. Nothing reveals an idol in your life like anger. Think about the things that you're angry about right now. If somebody punches you in the face, and you react angrily, it's because you have an idol not to get punched in your face. You don't get it. Okay, never mind. If, if somebody takes your money away from you and you become angry, it's because, let me make it more plain, you have an idol of finances in your life. If somebody does something in one of your relationships that causes funkiness or crunchiness, what Marianne and I call when our relationships strain. If, if you get crunchiness in a, in a relationship that you hold dear and it makes you angry, it's because that relationship is an idol in your life. Nothing will identify. It's like the pH balance strip. If you've ever taken chemistry, you dip it in this and it reveals a different color. You're cleaning the pool. You have to, and you have to dip the pH thing in there. And you're like, oh, there's way too much chlorine or there's not enough chlorine, whatever. I'm going, to get a disease. I'm going to get corona when I jump into this water. I don't know. Nothing reveals whether you're living in a testimony or your own, your own biography more than anger. First Chronicles 13, another story of David, verses 7 through 11, it says they're trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. They move the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart, new shiny, all these things, polished, brand new wood, been sanded down. Nobody's going to get a splinter. Everything looks so good on this new cart. With Uzzah and Ahio guiding it, David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps and lyres and timbrels and cymbals and trumpets. I mean, this is, is a big hubala going on, right? They are making all praise to God in verse 9. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. So they're coming back, they're doing everything in their own power, in their own might, they're making a big old do celebration. The ark is coming back to Jerusalem. The ark starts to wobble on this brand new cart. And what does Uzzah do? Him and his good intentions, he thinks, I can't let the ark hit the ground. Whoa, let me put it out. And what happens? We see, we read the rest of the story. God strikes Uzzah dead immediately. Man, that seems kind of unfair. Uzzah was just trying to like make the ark not fall to the ground. And by the way, God, did you not notice we were doing all this cool stuff? We were singing, I mean, like on Sunday morning we sing, Whoa! right, whatever, and we were like, oh, it's just beyond my, I can barely get to that note, but I'm going to get to it. We give it all we got, and God's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
I was doing this all for you, God. And so what we see here is David becomes angry at God. He becomes angry. Now, why would David become angry? Because David is bringing the ark back to Jerusalem with good intentions, but not the way that God had called him to do it. David is doing this all for the Lord, God. I'm doing this for you. And it really wasn't for him. It was for his own self. He wanted to be the king who brings back the presence of God to Jerusalem. I'm going to be the king that fought the Philistines. I'm going to be the king that set up this shiny new cart, got the, the strongest oxes that I could. We groomed them down. We gave them a bath. They didn't even smell. All of the things, I did this, and God, you have the audacity to strike Uzzah down. Oh, I can't believe it. Why? Because even bringing back the presence of God to Jerusalem was an idol for David. And there's things that we, maybe in this room, we have good intentions. Maybe we're doing it in the name of God. We're doing this all for God, because so to speak. And when it doesn't go our way, and you become angry, that's letting you know it's not for God. It's for yourself. Friends, what are you angry about this morning? What do you feel of maybe a victim in? What are the areas where you feel like you, God, that's just not fair? And the temptation is to rewrite the story. But my encouragement to us, friends, is to come back over here and say, God, I don't know why this happened the way it happened. I don't know. This isn't the way I planned this to be. Help me not become angry with you. There's a lot of people you ever hear say, I'm angry with God because so-and-so got sick. This person didn't fulfill their end of the bargain. And in what seemed like God should have held up his end, it seems like God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. My encouragement to you this morning, friends, is trust that God is good. Trust that God is faithful and trust that God sees the end from the beginning no matter what the circumstance is. Let go of the anger and trust God. Which brings me to the last point here. Is that we need to trust verses 3 and 5 say trust in the Lord and verse 5 says commit your ways to the Lord. Bless you. I have a little saying that I don't know if I live it pretty well, but it's something that is helpful for me when circumstances, when situations arise that I feel aren't going my way. And when I'm tempted not to trust God and when I'm tempted to kind of do my own thing, there's a saying that do I trust God with the consequences of being fully obedient to him. Do I trust God? So what, what does that mean? God has said, I want this for you. I would prefer this. But God, I will trust you. And, and here's, the, here's the hard thing. Sometimes when we start to move this way, the fear is that God is going to take something that we wanted over here away from us. Even if it's a good thing. God, I... I really, I understand I'm supposed to be trusting you. I'm supposed to be 
obedient to you, but I, I, have, I have this fear in my heart that if I fully surrender my life to you, if I fully trust you, if I fully commit my way to you, that you're going to ask me to give up something, or you might even in your wisdom take something from me that I hold very dear. You ever been there before? I have. I, I live there constantly. God, if, if I do, what if it's one of my kids, Lord? What if that, what if like one of my kids, if you call me to come over here, what if one of my kids ends up moving to Australia? <laughs> I don't want to be that far from my children. Or even worse, what if, what if this would result in something detrimental? And so what we do is that we just kind of try to straddle, right? If we can, we say, here's God's will, and here's my will, and there's a line down the middle. And what we do is we say, okay, God, look it. I'm not being fully disobedient to you. I'm actually doing, um, okay, let's, let's push it to like 52%. Over, look, 52, that's more than half. You know what James says about somebody who lives their life like that? It's like a person trying to go up and down an escalator at the same time. It just doesn't work. You can't go both ways. Being a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, James says. And what God wants us to do when he's calling us to live, not in an autobiography, but in a testimony, he says, move all your chips over one side. Push them all in. Be all in with me. Give it all you got. The only way that you and I can be all in with God is if we know that God is trustworthy. And friends, God is trustworthy. There's no one else that we should want to be in control. There's no one else who can define goodness better than God. God is good. He's not just good because he does good things. He is good. He is what good comes from. Good doesn't just exist somewhere out there and is an element that is floating in the universe somewhere and God in his supernatural power is able to suck in the goodness and be able like, see, now I'm good because, no, see, goodness comes from God. Goodness is who God is. And, and so we say, okay, good, but God is also loving. Love doesn't, again, just kind of exist out there, and it's in the universe floating around, and God from time to time will grab on to love and say, look at me, look how loving I am. No, love comes from God because God is love. And so when our temptation is at times, Lord, I don't trust you because I'm afraid to let go of these things that I hold so dear to, but I feel like you're calling me over here, then we have to remind ourselves the truth of the gospel that God is in control, yet he is good and he is loving, and he is trustworthy, and he is merciful, and he is just, and he will never call you from over here to over here just to make you miserable. 
He will call you from over here to over here because he knows the good works that he's prepared for you. Before the beginning of time, he set Mike O'Brien up and he said, these are the things that I have for Mike O'Brien. Mike, please surrender your life to me. Mike, don't, don't continually be tempted to walk over here. Remind yourselves of the truth that I am good. I am merciful. And when you start to get your eyes on the shiny things of the world, come back to me, look at me, see my goodness, know my love, understand my mercy, trust in my grace that this right here is better for you than anything that the world could ever offer for you over there, right? But it takes a surrender in order to do that. So, friends, do you trust God with the consequences of being fully obedient to him? I don't. I'm working on it. I'm trying my best. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us continue to shift our eyes from writing our own story to trusting and living in a testimony. Let me just say this at the end. I've gone way too long. God doesn't get writer's block. He doesn't start a story and then go, Mm. What's, what did I have for Isaiah again? Oh, yeah. It was a good story. <laughs> he doesn't do that with us. He constantly knows the story. He knows it. And in his faithfulness, he's always like, Isaiah, hey, buddy, you're going over here. Come back here. Come back here. And God's so faithful to us that he'll never stop nudging us back. That is good. That is faithful. Will you stand?